Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Lord, I just thank you that there's no wrong way to pray. You are delighted when we address you, regardless of what we think about you. You hear us. You're present. You slow our ears down. You slow our hearts down. You soften our hearts. You reveal to us your name. We can say it is well with our souls because of who you are, Jesus. And so in this next bit of time, in this space, would you clear out all distractions, all cynicism, even justified cynicism? And would you speak to the hearts of your people who you love so much? Would you tell them that you're not punitive, you're not angry, that the whole point of the story is how much you love us. Reveal that to our hearts today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. We're in our summer series called Storytime with Jesus. We've been looking at a smattering of parables um, and sort of asking the question of why parables, what is Jesus trying to teach us through them? Parables, briefly, they are uh, utilizing common concepts. Jesus uses common concepts for his listeners. He uses bread, he uses yeast, he uses sheep. He uses concepts that 99% of the people would understand, if not 100%. But he utilizes them in such a way that kind of flips it on its head. He utilizes them in a way that when you finish listening to it, you're wondering, okay, what does that mean? Or, or, Or how do I put that into practice? It creates a tension. It creates a discomfort. It creates a, oh, the kingdom is like this. What do we do? We're going to be in Luke today, Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bibles or if you have your smartphones, or if not, we're going to put it on the screen behind us, Luke chapter 15, and we're going to read verses one through seven. This is our text. Now the tax collectors and the sinners We're all gathering around to hear him, him meaning Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. He goes, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. All right. First reaction. If you're like me, (laughs) I don't like that word sinner, (laughs) right? My first reaction is to reject the stubbornness, the judgmentalism, the hypocrisy of these self-righteous Pharisees and the scribes, 
right? They're looking down their noses on those sinners and those tax collectors saying, oh, you, you moral reprobates. You can't live within the law. And so we stand on the side of the sinners and the tax collectors and we say, you self-righteous Pharisees, don't we? At least I do. However, my thesis today is that to side with the sinners and the other outcast in a rigid legalistic society, these poor marginalized people who are caught up in a system that they can't possibly overcome is in fact failing to see what Jesus is doing. Spoiler, you're the Pharisees. Oh, what? Yeah, I am too. And when we see it, when we feel what Jesus is doing, when he gives us vision of how the world is actually operating, who he is, who his father is, it blows us away from the incomparable beauty of this good news. And in order to do that, we gotta provide a little context. So context, that opening phrase, right? All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, and even one translation has it, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know it's getting real when you're called a fellow. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. When I hear that word sinner, my mind immediately goes to Dana Carvey from SNL, the church lady. Anyone remember that? Yes, right? Uh, Dana Carvey, um, he basically dressed up as like this Midwestern, sort of upper middle age um, Lutheran. I'm assuming she's Lutheran because no one in the Midwest is anything other than Lutheran. Um, and basically she's this finger wagging Puritan, judging people on their immorality. And she has this, cla- or he has this classic line where he's like, well, isn't that just special? Like just pure dripping condescension toward these people. Which means the, the sinners, right, in, in this, in this uh, sketch, the sinners are the poor, humble, marginalized people trying to do good, but in a, they're, they're in a broken system. They're not harming anyone but themselves, right? They're not harming anyone but themselves, but those self-righteous Christians just won't leave them alone. Sinners equals the oppressed in a hypocritical context, or I'm sorry, in a hypocritical system. Sinners equals the oppressed in the hypocritical system. However, in a Jewish context, tax collectors and sinners, that shorthand, are not those oppressed by an unjust system. They are the ones doing the oppressing. What? (laughs) They are the ones doing the oppressing. Sinners, right, just means those who disobey the law of Israel. And law is already um, an unfortunate word for us in the West. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew Torah, which means the teaching. So when we, when we sort of sum up the law of Israel, the law that God gave his people, it is the social, religious, economic, and cultural framework. It's a philosophy. It's a way of life. And he gave it to the Jewish people, his people, into which when they lived into it, Jews took care of one another. It was a framework by which the Jewish people cared for one another, took care of one another. Now, of course, there were elements of personal piety involved, sure, but not for the sake, uh, not for their own sake. Personal piety was involved insofar as it meant you were looking out and not harming another fellow Jew. So the, this, the Torah is actually the social, religious, 
cultural framework that helps bring life to the entire community. The idea that the law of Israel is this privatized morality, which told you to wash behind your ears and scrub your feet and really cared about what you did by yourself, that is entirely a Western reading. An entirely a Western reading that emerges from our society, which idolizes above all else, the individual. We cannot conceive of a society like the Jewish people that has a way of life which seems like a law, but at its core, all it's cared about is how we treat with one another. Jesus says this, doesn't he? When he's asked by one of the teachers of the law, sum up the law of Israel. What is the law of Israel? Love God and love your neighbor. That's the law of Israel. And good Jews, scribes and Pharisees would have known that. Sinners are those who have rejected that law to love God and love their neighbor. The law of Israel was an attempt to make sure that the poor always had food and the rich weren't too rich. Love your neighbor, show hospitality, take care of your fellow brothers and sisters. Therefore, as Dr. Amy Jill Levine writes, the problem is that many of us today hear sinner and think only in religious categories. The sinner is one who breaks the law, but the law becomes understood not in terms of love your neighbor as yourself or leave the corners of your field for the poor of which you were required to do if you were a Jewish person that owned land. You couldn't um, be totally efficient and maximize profits. You had to be kind of haphazard so that the poor could also glean from your fields. That's not the law. We think of the law in terms of earning your way into heaven or legalism or works righteousness. She goes on to say, the sinners are the individuals who have removed themselves from the common welfare, who look to themselves rather than the community. The sinners are the self-absorbed, selfish people. The gospels generally present sinners as wealthy people who have not attended to the poor. What? Yeah, feeling a little indicted. Maybe we are the sinners and the tax collectors. Maybe that is us. The tax collectors are a little bit easier to define. They are the traitors to Israel. Israel is not independent. They're not sovereign. Israel is subject to Rome. So Rome hires certain Jewish men to um, gather the tax. Now, of course, they wanted to be independent, wanted to be sovereign. So anyone who took that job was effectively selling their brothers and sisters out. They're like, I'll get rich off your back. So not only did they bring in the taxes for Rome, but they also extorted their fellow brothers and sisters. So they got rich. So the tax collectors were like this just low life in the views of Israel. They have sold us out. They have betrayed us to get rich for themselves. Sinners and tax collectors are not those oppressed by an unjust system. They are the oppressors. They're the ones who will sell their brother out for 20 pieces of silver and not think twice about it. They're the drug dealers, uncaring toward the families destroyed by their stuff. They're the big business tycoons, but not the big business tycoons who views their work as humanitarian purposes, but the ones who literally don't care about you, who just want to get rich. Those are the sinners and the tax collectors. I don't want you to think helpless victim. I want you to think perpetrator. I want you to picture in your mind's eye the person who stabbed you in the back, who you thought was your brother, your sister. Who's that person? 
That's the sinner and the tax collector. The business partner who took the money and run. The friend you thought had your back, you discovered has been talking bad about you the entire time. The one who's exploited you, extorted you, betrayed you, and doesn't care. That's the people who are coming around Jesus to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes are those who have attempted to care for their fellow Jews. And they're going, what is going on? Why is he eating with them? You're supposed to be our savior. We're the ones following the laws of Israel. We're being faithful. You know what they've done. They betrayed us. They betrayed your people. And you're welcoming them? And again, maybe you already know this, but eating in the ancient context is not like eating today. We can share a meal with an acquaintance or even an enemy today, um, and, and it's, it's no big deal. Eating in the ancient context signaled friendship and family. It was a huge deal who you ate with in the first century. So by Jesus eating with these people, he's saying he's restoring them into the family of Israel. And so the scribes and the Pharisees are like, oh, oh man, what? What? Jesus is hanging out with your mortal enemy. Jesus, your savior, is hanging out with your mortal enemy. And he's like, it's cool. It's cool. You got some questions, don't you? And then, with that context, he asked one long question. Our Greek doesn't, or I'm sorry, our English doesn't really capture it, but in the Greek, it's like one long construction. So I, I tried to sort of rework it so that you would see how it builds on it, okay? So he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees in that context, and he says, which among you, which among you, having 100 sheep and losing one of them, will not abandon the 99 and go and search for the lost one until you find it? And finding it, which of you won't put it around your neck? Rejoicing and come to the house. And, and when you get home, which, which of you won't call your friends and your neighbors and say to them, rejoice with me? I found my lost sheep. Well, which of you won't do that? And if you were a first century listener, your mouth would be on the floor <laughs> for a couple of reasons. One, he starts by saying, which of you having a hundred sheep and losing one? Who's at fault? the shepherd. But you just heard the context. The sinners and the tax collectors stabbed them in the back. And Jesus is saying, this is your fault that they got away. What? They, they stabbed us in the back. They betrayed us. And you're putting the culpability on us for letting them go? Yeah. Which, which of you? You lost one of your sheep. He equates them to the shepherd who lost the sheep as if it's their fault. Moreover, the shepherd is aware of one sheep missing out of a hundred. There are about a hundred of you here today. We sometimes have people give like counts. So they're intentionally looking and trying to count and we still don't get the same answer. And y'all all look different. Sheep look the same. And the shepherd's aware of one sheep of the hundred that is gone. We're told Jesus says he forsakes the 99. There's a Greek word lipto, which means to leave. But this one, this word is kata lipto. It adds the kata, which is a prefix, which intensifies it. So Jesus is saying, which of you losing one of your sheep, um, you know, just leaves behind. He's saying, which of you doesn't abandon the other 99? Forsake the 99 to go in search of it. 
And so far as I can tell, the sheep doesn't want to come home because the shepherd takes him, puts him around his neck and brings him back. So he's bringing the sheep back against his will. He's bringing the person who betrayed him against their will. They're they're not repentant. They're not remorseful. He forces them to come home. Go reconcile with these people who aren't even sorry for what they did to you. What? And then, because in the Greek construction, it's all one long question. The the major uh, significant part is the very end. That's how it builds. So it ends by Jesus saying, you lost the sheep, but which of you won't abandon the other 99 who, who haven't done anything? Go in search of that one, force him, put him around your neck, force him to come back and then throw a party for them. Which of you won't throw a party for the one who betrayed you? What? So I retranslated it again. I retranslated the retranslation to put it in a modern context that might make more sense for us, all right? Which of you, having a brother or a sister who stabbed you in the back, but you're to blame because you let your brother or sister go? And even though you have 99 other faithful, loyal brothers and sisters, which of you will not forsake those faithful, loyal 99 brothers and sisters? Forsake them, abandon them, and go in search of the one who betrayed you like crazy. And finding him, Which of you won't force him to come back home to reconcile with you, even though he doesn't want to at first? And even when he's back, which of you won't call your friends and neighbors and probably the other 99 faithful, loyal family members and say, guess what? The brother who stabbed me in the back, I found him and he's home. Let's rejoice. Which of you won't do that? You feel that? You feel that? (laughs) I won't or at least I'm gonna have to have something work on my heart. That is asking a lot. And I tell you, says Jesus, that the joy in heaven over one person who's repented and come home outweighs the 99 who had no need. And even as I ask that question of which of you, I can see the mothers in the room and they know exactly what I'm saying. Which of you moms having a family and one of them, one of your kids betraying you cursing you, running away, which of you won't be fully complete until they're home? You know what I'm talking about. My brother, I've shared this story before, my older brother, Matthew, he was a hellion. He was cruel. He wasn't just doing his own thing. He was cruel to our family. He was mean to my mother, mean. And yet I witnessed it over and over. My mom was not happy until he was home. Even if he just came to wash his clothes and eat a meal to use her, she was not happy until he was home. Because her family wasn't complete. What is Jesus doing? He's tapping us. He's opening it, pulling back the layers of our flesh and he's tapping us into the very heart of God. It's almost like he's saying to the scribes and Pharisees, hey, I I realize this feels weird and I realize I don't wanna make it about me. However, I don't think you understand betrayal like I do. This is the scandal of grace. He's revealing to us in that one question, the heart of God. 
his heart. A father who creates a world purely from love has no reason to create it. He wants creatures to delight in. And then one of the creatures, he gives something special. He gives the breath of his own life. He imparts life into us humans. And we are made like God to delight in and to enjoy. And what did we do? We betrayed him. And of course, the story is very big of how it happened and we were, we were seduced by an enemy and absolutely, but we betrayed our father. We spit on him who gave us life. We had no reason to be alive. He created us. We spit on him. We were cruel toward him and we do it every day still by the way we treat one another, by our hatred, by our, by our un injustice, by our violence, by the way we wield power, by our fear that calcifies into cruelty. We betray him every day. But who is the mother, says Jesus, that won't come after their traitorous child simply because they are her child? Who is the mother that won't do that? I called my mom this last week to ask her because I knew this was where the sermon was headed. And I was like, mom, our story had a really happy ending. I realized some of you in here might not have that yet, might have similar situations. My brother became a Christian. He encountered Jesus at age 27 in a way that literally, I kid you not, he went to bed one night. It felt like this for us because we weren't you know, together at the time. He went to bed one night angry and cruel and he woke up the next morning laughing and in tears. He has been a completely different person. But I called my mom and I said, mom, this is where the sermon's going. Why, why couldn't you give up on Matthew? Like why, you were so hurt, even the way he treated you. And of course that made us feel terrible because we're like, do you love him more? Or like, what's going on? Why, why? And of course she's like, that's not it at all. And I know that now but why couldn't you let him go? And of course, the, the mothers in the room, they know there was no words. <laughs> she couldn't find the words. It's, it's deeper than that. And then finally, she just mumbled out, Russ, he's of me. He's of me. He's of me. A part of me exists in this world. Therefore, I am not whole by myself anymore. And so long as he exists and I exist, I cannot rest until he's home and we're reconciled. See, the Pharisees and the scribes, they looked at the sinners and they saw betrayal. Jesus looked at them and he saw his family. God looks at us, no matter where we are, and says, you're of me. You're of me. Even if you don't think you are, you are. And I cannot rest while you're away. Home isn't complete. Even in a heaven full of 99 faithful, loyal creatures and one small speck of creation betrays God the Father. God says it's incomplete. I cannot rest. I cannot rest while a part of my creation who I love dearly is unreconciled to me. But they're not repentant. They're not gonna do anything. They're not gonna make the, the steps toward me. So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna forsake the 99 faithful, loyal creatures. 
I'm going to humble myself and come in the form of a man. I'm going to live a life that is exploding with love. And I'm going to take that betraying creation and I'm going to put them around my shoulders as I hang on a cross. I'm going to do it for them. Because what parent wouldn't? They're of me. Home isn't home without you. Home isn't home without you. God, if I may beg this, and I'm not sure if I'm theologically correct with this one, but it seems like God isn't God without you either. That seems to be what Jesus has said. It's just not the same. And so far as it's within my power, speaking as God, I will do everything I can, regardless of whether you are remorseful or even you see anything to come for you, to tell you, we just want you to come home. We don't care what's been done. We don't care what's happened. Come home. We love you. We want you. And he's called everyone when he came out of the tomb to come celebrate. Come celebrate. The one who was away, we found them. We found our humans. And we brought them back. And now the heavens are rejoicing over creation who's come back to the table, who's rejoined the family through nothing of our own, through all of the shepherd who took responsibility and came. In the same way that there is no God without us, there is no church without them, whoever them is for you. That's a hard lesson, friends, but this is the absolute heart of the gospel. Whoever you're not reconciled to, Jesus would say with tremendous love in his heart, it's on you. Even though they betrayed you, even though they want nothing to do with you, it's on you. Look what your your God has done for you. Dr. Levine, she ends talking about this parable this way. I'm going to invite the band back up with this. She says, do whatever it takes to find the lost and then celebrate with others. Both so that you can share the joy and so that others will help prevent the recovered from ever being lost again. Don't wait until you receive an apology. You may never get one. Don't wait until you can muster the ability to forgive. You may never find it. Don't stew in your sense of being ignored for there is nothing that can be done to retrieve the past. Instead, go have lunch. Go celebrate and invite others to join you. If the repenting and forgiving come later, so much the better. And if not, you will still have done what is necessary. You will have begun a process that might just lead to reconciliation. You will have opened a second chance to wholeness. You will have embodied the heart of Jesus. Take advantage of resurrection, friends. It is unlikely to happen twice. Will you stand with me? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. And Lord, you say, will you not call the 99 and say, let's celebrate? 
let's rejoice with EDM 80s techno music. <laughs> because we've, we've looked at your cross, Jesus, and we've seen it's made sense to us, your love. You're not asking anything of us. Even though we betrayed you, you're not asking anything of us. You're just saying, look, look at your God. He's done it all. He's done it all. Lord, you know every heart in this room. You know where they are. My prayer is that if there's anyone in this room who senses in their heart right now the truth of these words, despite their fears, despite what it may mean, but senses that you are a God who came in the flesh because you loved them that you're for them, despite their questions even. That in their hearts right now, that they would yield to your love, that they would allow you to put them over your shoulders and carry them back to the table. That right now in their hearts that they would cry, Jesus, save me. I need you. Please love me like you say you do. And for those of us in here, Lord, who know, who've encountered that love before in you, our call, our invitation is to encounter it again and remember the charge that you've placed on us as the church. We're not to wait for others, no matter how much we've been hurt by others, knowing that it'll take time, knowing it might not work out as we expect, but it's not on them, it's on us to go to them. It's on us to not wait for an apology, to not wait until I have the ability to forgive, but to go. Why? Because you've done the exact same thing for us. So how can we receive your grace and not extend it to others? We can't. It is a walking contradiction, which is why the Pharisees and the scribes were rebuked. Because they received the love of God, but refused to offer it to others. We will not be that, Lord. And we know that there's some wounds that are very, very deep, very deep, that seem absolutely tender and untouchable. And we know that your Holy Spirit's gonna have to heal those but give us the courage, muster in us the invitation, the call to go. Jesus, I just pray in this moment right now, as we're about to sing together as a community, that your Holy Spirit would be tangible, that all questions would, would flow out of our minds, that the cynical thoughts that we hold so tightly to because they keep us safe, that we'd let go and that maybe, just maybe, we dare to turn our eyes to you and to allow you to love us. Can we unclench our fists and turn our eyes to Jesus, the shepherd who came for us and allow him 
to love us. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.